everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And today we have a very special bonus episode with the author of our February book pick, which is If I Had Your Face. So we're joined today by Francis Cha. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. So I, I'm going to give a quick bio on you for people who are familiar with the book but might not be familiar with you. And then we have so many questions for you. So Frances is the author of the novel If I Had Your Face, which was her debut novel. And she was born in Minnesota and spent time in Texas and Hong Kong before moving to South Korea at age 12. She graduated from Dartmouth College with a BA in English Literature and Asian Studies. And for her MFA in Creative Writing, she attended Columbia University, where she received a Dean's Fellowship. She worked as the assistant managing editor of Samsung Economic Research Institute's Business Journal in Seoul and as a travel and culture editor for CNN International in Seoul and Hong Kong. And she divides her time between Brooklyn and Seoul. Welcome, Francis. We're s- we loved your book. I feel like we have so much to talk about and so many questions about this book. I know. I I think my like biggest question is I I want to know how much of this book is true to life in South Korea versus how much of it is stylized or dramatized. Because I feel like I always think of Sex in the City, and whenever anyone thinks that living in New York is exactly like <laughs> Sex in the City, you're like, oh, I roll. But how? <laughs> <laughs> How true to life is is if I had your face? Yeah, um, I I think of it. First of all, thank you so much for reading it, and it's it means so much to me. It I can't even tell you. But um, in regards to that, I, it's a question I get a lot, and I have to say, um, I always wanted to make everything as true as possible, and so everything is grounded in truth. But of course, as it's fiction, none of it is actually true. Um, and everything, in fact, I would have had to tone down a lot of things uh, because really? you really wow. can't have anything too extreme in fiction. You know, coincidences are always bad in fiction, too, things like that. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of it is toned down. <laughs> Interesting. I'm curious what parts were toned down. Oh, all all parts, I think, even, you know, and it's true. It's kind of difficult in a way to generalize as well, because you can say that, for example, Kardashians do represent a part of American culture, um, but they don't represent all of American culture. It's, it's kind of like that. There are always people who are extreme. Um, so whether it's plastic surgery addicts who are, very extreme in that addiction um, to, you know, whatever topic you want to talk about, really. And you grew up partly in Seoul, right? Yeah. I actually moved there when I was 11, um, now that I'm backtracking. And, and then I enrolled in public Korean school. It was in a province outside of Seoul. And when, yeah, Korea's been home for me until seven years ago when I moved to New York um, and they, and I went to boarding school um, in college and grad school in America, but every few months I would fly home. So if you kind of tally the actual months I spent in Korea during those school years, it's still almost half the year. Yeah. Um, every year. 
And were any of the girls' experiences or, or parts of their experience based on based on yourself? Oh, it's a lot of it is is kind of like the stepping stone was an experience that I had or an observation that I had of other people, um, but very heavily fictionalized. Yeah. Yeah. I was really curious about um, all of the bits of plastic surgery in South Korea. I, I'll tell you, at one point, I had the book open, and then on my, I had my laptop balanced on my lap, and I was looking up all of the different surgeries that were referenced and looking at before and after photos. I got very, very engrossed in it because I hadn't heard of things like jaw, jaw surgery and things. Like, mm-hmm. Were a lot of those anecdotes real? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I recently had a former intern of mine when I was at CNN uh, contact me after she had read the book and she had gone to med school and become a plastic surgery doctor. And she had written to me saying she was quite amazed that, you know, first of all, that she ever encountered anything like this in English fiction because she hadn't read any, anything said in modern Korea before. And also how I got everything right. And everything was very, very accurate down to all the the managers and the clinics and how they kind of persuade you and reassure you at the same time and talk about their own experiences um, and give like really honest feedback according to what they've had done. And I did I, a lot of it too. I, I'm very hesitant about having it seem kind of like a freakish place I, that really upsets me but that's kind of a lot of what I've been getting in terms of media questions as well but you know in every every culture there's there are snippets of things like this but a lot of it is actually how available clinics are and it's not just plastic surgery it's just doctors in general it's a very hyper competitive academic culture and becoming a doctor is one of the you know I idealized and sought after jobs. Um, And just even this morning, my husband was trying to make an an appointment with an uh, ear doctor in, in New York. And the earliest appointment he could get is a month out Mm -hmm. in Korea. You can go down the street, walk into any kind of clinic, any kind of clinic and get state of the art treatment in like 10 minutes, you know, And the same thing goes for plastic surgery clinics too. It's just so accessible that I I feel like, like, oh, okay, let me go and see what I can do about my, you know, whatever today. And you get a consultation right away. And when it's that accessible, I think it becomes commonplace. And we actually read in another interview that you did that you actually went to a clinic to get a consultation about jaw surgery is research. What was that like? <laughs> I went to several clinics uh, posing as a client and I'm personally not a, uh, what's the word in English, like a potential candidate for mm-hmm. jaw surgery because my, my jaw doesn't protrude, but I am a candidate for jaw shaving surgery, which, you know, they were really after me <laughs> for. <laughs> and um, so I had to, pretend that it was a friend of mine in the States who wanted to get it. And I was kind of acting as a go-between. So I had all these hypothetical questions that I was asking the doctor. Um, And 
Yeah. So for me, they 3D map to my face uh, and they give you kind of a projection of what you would look like after surgery. And it's really compelling. It's wow. Just so, so what does that crazy. do to like your, your self-confidence? I don't know. I think if I went in and they were showing me like all the things that were allegedly like wrong with my face, I would probably go home and cry. <laughs> it's it, it was interesting because they they were like, oh, when you take photos, you are probably self-conscious of this, this, and this. And this is what you probably do to try to make yourself look better. And for me, that was completely accurate. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like they are trying to put you down. necessarily. That's just kind of talking about your insecurities that you already have, which is of course, dictated by society and unrealistic standards of beauty and Photoshop and all of that. And so it was all the more compelling because it seemed like they were teasing out some secret inside of you that they knew already um, somehow. Oh, it sounds like therapy. (laughs) And then the doctor doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of how much it costs. And because I, I really wanted the details of you know, exactly how long it's going to take, how, what does the surgery entail? What's the recovery time? uh, How much is it going to be? How many hours are in surgery? um, What is the post-surgery care like? What do I eat after surgery? You know, all of those things, I had extremely detailed questions. And these are not questions that I guess they get on a consultation, like a first consultation. And Those seem like very yeah. reasonable questions yeah. if you were considering major surgery. <laughs> exactly. So that was also very interesting to me how they didn't think those were reasonable questions. Not reasonable, but it was not commonly asked in that initial stage. I guess people go in and and they kind of sign and then you go into the details later. But I also agree that it's uh, I'm just someone who does an insane amount of research on everything beforehand. I can't imagine making such a drastic decision that's going to have such an impact on your life. Um, But as you've seen from before and after photos, the results are extremely dramatic. Um, And it does, it does make a lot of women's lives better if they were completely stricken by, you know, self-doubt and confidence issues and, and a lot of other things that I talk about, I guess, in the book. Now, what about the beauty standards for men? Are there any? And um, is like, is there a side of the plastic surgery market that's geared towards men? So I, I remember covering the cosmetics market, not the surgery market. Um, And I wrote an article about how it's the largest market in the world for men's cosmetics. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think that's still, you know, indicative of kind of the preoccupations of men as well. And there is definitely a higher um, rate for men in Korea than other countries, I would say. And, um, Everyone is, because again, it's so accessible. I 
I'm trying to remember a couple of people I know got hair transplants, things like that. A male friend of mine was talking about that. It sounded so painful. Yes. I heard from someone who got it that it's every, you can feel each follicle. (laughs) It's so much pain. That's what he said. I was like, why would you do this to yourself? You're fine. (laughs) Is it strange that I'm I'm weirdly comforted that at least it's a two-sided standard and that the men aren't totally excluded and they're also using cosmetics and considering procedures as well. Oh yeah. But I, the women, it's definitely more, more pressure um, than the men yeah. um, by many fold, but there is pressure on the men as well. Um, and again, I kind of like to talk about it in a way that I know there is a, a very judgmental lens um, from the Western point of view that I do kind of get upset by, but I often talk about braces as my favorite example. So br- braces are just so commonplace and normal in the States and it impacts so much of your life that you can't really quantify um, from your confidence to probably your love life, your job prospects and and all of that and it is an extremely you know in kind of an invasive and painful and years long procedure um but it's not kind of regarded the same way you're totally right i'm thinking about what i had to get done when i was young on my mouth <laughs> like it was pretty dramatic yeah i had them for years um it was really painful and awful and i i would say it definitely changed my confidence level before and after. So that's kind of what I always think about. Yeah, that's such a good comparison. Yeah. The other thing I want to hear more about is is about the attitudes around mental health. Because I know in the book, um, specifically, Kiri is very, very flippant about suicide. And uh, it almost sounds like she's considering it as like an inevitability for her. Um, there's also the plot line of Juana going to um, a Western-style therapist and in her younger years and then in her later years, somebody suggesting it to her. And um, I believe she actually says she doesn't want to because she is afraid that her she wouldn't be able to be insured anymore. So I'm curious, like, what are, you know, what are the prevailing attitudes around mental health and, like, how did the women in the book represent those or um, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. the extremes of those? I would say there is such a stigma, uh, such a st- stigma that still exists. And in recent years, even you know, since I started writing the book and after its publication, I have noticed more mental health clinics cropping up, but nobody that I know really admits to getting counseling or seeking help because, you know, there are so many societal stigmas attached to it. And the insurance thing, I actually called several insurance companies to ask um, when I was doing research for the book and they, they were, they wouldn't give me an answer, but I did hear from other people who were dropped from coverage because they, they were seeking it out. And I don't know what it's like, you know, this year because everything changes all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
Suicide is the number one cause of it. South Korea has the highest rate of suicide amongst developed countries in the world. Um, and it's always, I think, the number one cause of death among young people as well. And it's because of all this pressure placed on them uh, academically and and it's hard to find help because of the stigmas attached. Yeah. We want to also talk about the room salons and your personal experience with them because we did our homework. We read a few interviews that you've done and we read that part of the book was inspired by your own experiences meeting a male friend at a room salon and that before that you hadn't even known that they existed. It's really quite crazy what a curtain there is between those who go and those who have no idea what it is yeah and it's gender divided and because um I was kind of reminded of it when I watched Bridgerton you know how I don't know if you watched Bridgerton well, yeah yeah how the young women don't have any idea because in polite society you don't talk about you know things like that um, and it was very much, I think, like that for me. I never heard it talked about. Uh, but once I did, once I knew what they were, because I was called to one inadvertently by a very drunk friend who was having trouble with his girlfriend, who was also a friend of mine, and he wanted to vent. Um, and I went and I was in the room with these absolutely stunningly beautiful young woman. And I was kind of thinking, what are the chances that all these incredibly beautiful women are in this one room? What's going on? And then I, it hit me gradually that there was something strange going on. Um, and after I realized what it was, I, I constantly tried to get my guy friends to take me to room salons. Um, and they, I mean, most of them refused always because they were like, oh, so inappropriate or they're legitimately business client meetings. And so they don't want me to compromise any kind of business endeavor that they're doing, or they just don't want me to kind of, what do you call it? Ruin the mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nail camaraderie. Um, but I did manage to get a few to take me again and I would soak in the atmosphere and kind of record everything in my mind to use later. And in talking to your other female friends, were they aware of room salons or is it something that like they really, it seemed like in the book, a lot of the men were, were there and having affairs and it didn't really seem like their, their wives knew. Yeah. I mean, I think as I grow older, the women know more about the society and what's going on. Um, but no, when I was when I was younger, I think they really have this divide in their heads of people who go and people who don't, and they're like, "Oh, no one I know would ever do that," and that's not true. Yeah. Um, another thing we wanted to talk about was the K-pop stuff. And this was because of another interview you did. And you said 
that um, it came that the K-pop stuff came from a personal background in fandom. So we wanted to know more about that, and um, if you feel comfortable sharing. Oh yeah, <laughs> who's your crown? So <laughs> <laughs> this is mildly embarrassing. Your whole now, face just actually- lit up. <laughs> I have to say, even these days when I look at BTS kind of shooting to superstardom, I feel, of course, very proud of them. But at the same time, I'm a little aggrieved that my band wasn't the one to shoot to global Oh, so BTS is not your band. BTS is definitely not. No, no. They were years after my time. Um, Mine was a group called Big Bang. And they're still... I guess they're kind of still around. They're doing their own solo endeavors. They were embroiled in all kinds of scandal after coming out. Um, some including, you know, room salons and very shady things, drugs, um, suicide attempts, all of that. Truth is always stranger than fiction. And um, I, the reason I, I kind of went down that rabbit hole is because I was, I took some time off of grad school when my father became very ill and I was uh, in Korea kind of on hiatus from everything and nursing him in the hospital. And when he passed away, I took a job um, in Korea and that was a very, very dark time for me. Um, And my office was deathly silent all day, every day. Uh, And it's not the environment that is the healthiest for you when you're grieving and you're kind of going in and sitting in deathly silence at your cubicle all day and and like horror. Yeah. And when, I don't know how I started on, uh, oh, I know I did. I watched a documentary about them and then I became absolutely obsessed with this group and was on all these fan boards, message boards. Um, and I I was quite older. I, since I was in my late 20s at the time, I was a lot older than the, the main demographic. And so, and I was, I had a job and an income. So I was able to source things and go to concerts more easily than most of the other young fans. But um, it was still such an engrossing, all immersive uh, time of my life. And I am so grateful even to this day of, for them, to them for giving me so much joy at a time when I didn't have anything else that was joyful. Yeah. So I feel like we've just quizzed you on, on South Korean culture, but I, I want to <laughs> talk more about the book. And it feels like, it seems like each girl kind of embodies a different theme uh, about attitudes or specific aspects of Korean culture. And I'm curious, when you started to write this book, like, how did you decide how to build these characters and, and what you wanted to include and and kind of what you wanted to thematically say? Mm-hmm. The first story, which is the first chapter that I wrote, I started out because I had just read about the Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. You guys know about it? Yeah. And I had just finished reading several novels where it was all about love and betrayal. And I was kind of 
over it. And I wanted to write something that would not talk, would have female protagonists that were not talking about boys in any way and their love lives. And that was the goal I set for myself when I first began that story. And and then I w- I've always been very drawn to interconnected stories. Um, the Feast of Love by Charles Baxter, Olive Kittredge, uh, one of my, you know, some of my favorite books. And so I, I set out thinking about different girls who are living in an office tell. An office tell is a multi-purpose uh, building. And I lived across from one in Korea. So I would, every day I would kind of through the window, see young people going in and out. And I wonder about their lives and what it's like to live alone. Cause these are the people who don't have families in Seoul. And that's the only reason why they're living by themselves. Usually in Korea, you live with your parents until you get married. Um, that's most of it is cultural, but also because of, exorbitantly skyrocketing real estate prices. So there's no way you can afford to live alone unless you absolutely have to for your job. And I kind of thought about these interweaving stories set around a physical building. Why did you choose not to include um, chapters from Su Jun's per- perspective? So I mean, to us, it felt like she was such a main character, but we never really heard from her directly. Yeah, I I guess I I didn't think that she would add anything that wasn't being told through the other characters. So I just liked the idea of having her kind of be a more bumbling, foolish character. And in the end, you discover that she's actually been the one who's so instrumental in propelling the other characters' stories and and kind of catalyzing a lot of their life events. Um, And that was a surprise to me as well. But yeah, I never, I never really heard. She seemed to me a very sweet, um, very simple type of person. (laughs) So yeah, I I kind of had the cuties um, perspective on her. Yeah, and I, I kind of, it, it kind of seems like she also ends up the happiest. Where, yeah, <laughs> um, even though her circumstances aren't great, she's she's happy with where she is. Versus, yeah. I think the other characters had a, a a lot more emotional depth in terms of like grappling with, you know, what was happening to them in their circumstances. You've got a complete, you know, as a tortured writer type (laughs) always like why do I feel like this why can't I just be happy and I always wonder and I'm always so jealous of people I know who seem so happy and it's and then I realized it's not because they're simple the way that I kind of look at (laughs) Suja but it's because they're they're choosing they're actively choosing every day to look uh, on the brighter side of things. And that's the most difficult thing of all. And something that I just can't do personality wise, uh, but I wish I could. So Sujin for me is that. Yeah. I, I, I love her <laughs> so much. So. 
And I want to talk a little bit about the release of this book. So I was telling you before we started the interview that um, we totally missed this book. We um, we got told about this book in the context of its paperback release. And mm-hmm. since we've been talking about it, I've had actually a lot of people come out of the woodwork to say, I loved this book so much. And it, it got um, it didn't get the hype it deserved. And I've also heard that um, from a lot of authors, too, who said that about this book. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm really curious, like, f- from your side, what has the reception been like, uh, especially because this book came out in April 2020, which was, you know, right at the height of the U.S. locking down? I mean, I- I'm still kind of not over it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still yeah. like a PTSD Yeah, from, from working on it for, from the first words to publication, it was 10 years. Oh, my and goodness. And I've been, like, dreaming about the launch date, the launch party. I was going to have it at uh, <laughs> in Brooklyn Heights with the bar um, so that, you know, friends could come and have a drink. And I had all these cookies that I was going to bake <laughs> and stuff like that. And watching every every week the news getting worse and worse. And finally, when, you know, there was that one Atlantic article, cancel everything. Yes. I remember. And indeed, everything was canceled. And it really felt like my world was just completely shattered. And at the same time, I do think that it could have been a lot worse for in terms of the reception because everyone was so glued to social media that there was there was a social media kind of a small um, following that has been very consistent. Surprisingly, um, it's a consistent seller that way. I unfortunately get the numbers every week and I wish I didn't look, but it, but it's been interesting that it's consistently. Um, still still going um, and the reception has been in the age of social media it's it's been almost overwhelming how instantaneous it is and having people tag me from different countries around the world that's just been the coolest thing ever um, in Asia too they're they're really excited about it. And I, I'm so grateful for everyone who's posted about it and talked about it. Well, we enjoyed it so much. Like it was just a sh- what we were both reading it and we were like, should this be our book club pick? And we were both like, yes, we need to talk about it. I'm so <laughs> grateful. I feel like at the beginning of quarantine, reading was really, really hard for me. I just didn't have any focus. Same. But then as we've gotten further, books like this that I almost can feel as if I'm traveling, even though I'm in my own living room, have been my favorite books to read because I'm just so sick of my own four walls. Um, so I really enjoyed just diving into uh, circumstances and a culture that was so different than the life that I'm living right now, which is just inside Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I couldn't repeat. Books are travel for us right now. I couldn't agree more with you, Becca. So I feel like in some ways it, it is a perfect time for this book because – you know, it feels so escapist. Mm-hmm. From the snow-covered. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Do you, Thank you. Do you have any glimpses of what you're working on next? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I am working on my second book, and it's a, it's more along the horror thing. Ooh. 
I you love got Grace's horror. attention. Yeah, that's my favorite. Is anything murdery? Yeah, it's it's stemming from this family that grew up across the street from my mother and my her brother, and I just overheard my uncle and my mom talking about this cursed family one day, and I was like, I never knew about this. What are you talking about? And it was apparently this curse that has passed down through the matrilineal line for generations um, has like supernatural elements and, and all of that. And my, my mom is such a practical, like realism grounded person. My uncle is an atomic scientist who has a PhD in nuclear science. And I I just could not reconcile what they were saying um, about this family and started doing a lot of research into it, got so hooked. And that's, yeah, that's what it's going to be about. (laughs) Oh, well, I can't wait to read it. That's very exciting. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, We've enjoyed talking to you so much, but in the tradition of our podcast, um, you've earned your very own desperation minute. So we would love it if you could tell people where they can find you online, what they can do to support you, anything you want to promote. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. Um, I'm on Instagram at Francis Cha writes. So yes, please um, follow me. And if you could give me a shout out, that would be so great. Um, I think supporting Asian writers at this time, it's, it's been a very tough time for Asians in America with the wave of anti-Asian sentiment going on. Mm -hmm. So just, reading um, and spreading empathy through posting about books by Asian writers. I think that's just the the best thing to do right now. I'm going to add on a bonus question. What are some of your favorite recent releases from Asian authors? Oh my gosh, so many. So uh, David Tung can't get a girlfriend until he gets into an Ivy League college, which is by Edlin. It's a hilarious, such a tender-hearted YA book um, about a Chinese high school student who is feeling so much pressure from his parents who run a Chinese restaurant. It's just unlike anything I've I've heard before. And uh, the magical language of others by E.J. Ko is another really wonderful book. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a fantastic episode, and we loved hearing more about the behind the scenes of this book and the inspiration. Yeah, it was really cool. I wish we could meet up in Williamsburg one day. One day we will. Once once we're all vaccinated, it would be so fun to get drinks. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, 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 o